Well, we second wave feminists are getting old and dying. Some of the women that I worked with in the 70s and 80s are gone now. Do you know what I mean when I say second wave feminist? The first wave is generally considered to be the suffragists. It took two generations to get votes for women from 1848 to 1920. And as soon as the vote was guaranteed, by the way, you don't give rights. You may guarantee them, but you don't give them. And certainly, no one ever gave away rights. Anyway, as soon as votes for women were secure in the Constitution, Alice Paul, who was one of the second generations, wrote the Equal Rights Amendment to cover all rights for women. And it was introduced in Congress every year until 1972, when Manny Seller, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, was finally defeated by Elizabeth Holtzman of New York and she reintroduced it, and it was passed by Congress, and it went to the states for ratification. Well, more about that later. All of the women that I worked most closely with, and it was primarily the Arkansas Women's Political Caucus, because I was living in Little Rock at the time, and the UUWF, the Unitarian Universalist Women's Federation, uh, and the district women's group. We were all concerned about and worked on and had backgrounds in working on civil rights, civil liberties, peace, ecology, women's reproductive freedom, LGBT rights, We never were single-issue people. On the UU Women's Federation, which, by the way, the women of the, the Unitarian women and the Universalist women joined together a couple of years before the association itself did. And during the time that I was on the UUWF board, uh, and women all around were, I don't know, howling at the moon and drumming and chanting, and people in churches were saying, what's going on here? Um, you know, most of us believe in, in at most one god, and now you're bringing in all these goddesses. Well, it was kind of a fermented kind of time. One of the things that I did that was partially initiated in the Southwest District, the Southwest being Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, um, was to create an endowment for feminist theology. Now, I spell that T-H-E-A-L-O-G-Y. Um, and in 1989, under the auspices of the Women's Federation, 
and with Betty Hoskins as editor, <coughs> we put together an anthology of writings by some of those second-wave feminists, some of the women who had been uh, at the forefront of getting the principles and purposes changed, of um, getting this hymn book changed. Um, we called it Transforming Thought, Feminist Theology in the Context of Unitarian Universalist Women. And when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to uh, talk about today, I decided to take excerpts from this piece that I wrote. Which was really about the theology of story. Story with a capital S. Because one woman's life is not just one woman's life. Many issues of the women's movement have played out in my life and in the lives of my mother, grandmothers, daughter, close friends. No doubt the same is true in your families as well. Our stories are the truths we know the truths we find ourselves telling over and over again for, for us to hear and remember, for our daughters and sons to hear, for the world to hear and heed. The feminist theology of story offers the political and the spiritual a place to meet in the personal. It is a process of discovering and keeping our history as women, individually and collectively, reclaiming the value of that which has been labeled the feminine, re-imaging woman, redefining human, reconnecting with the earth, naming and recreating ourselves and our society, telling our stories with all their varied perspectives. In the Unitarian Universalist world, this has meant, among other things, reviewing our language, imagery, and worship elements with a goal of greater inclusion and more lively spirit. I've called it thawing out God's frozen people. The principles and purposes and this hymnal are some of the tangible outcomes of this revisioning. My own journey has been shaped by life in the fundamentalist Bible Belt. Anybody here know anything about that? Where patriarchal culture and religion have not been disguised by liberal sophistication. This journey has taught me that revisioning the social contract around racism and sexism is a deeply spiritual act. And to revision God is a radically political act. To evoke goddess alters at the root the cosmology, ethics, values, and mythos that undergird the good old boy system. Even if the evocation of goddess 
only alters your own mindscape. That change can have a profound effect on how you interact with the system. When you revision God, you done quit preaching and gone to meddling. Nineteen sixty-eight was the year I began to walk my talk. My then husband Bill was in Vietnam, stationed in Saigon, mostly delivering payroll by helicopter to the South Vietnamese military. And I lived in El Dorado, his hometown, with my toddler daughter. Mother was living here in Shreveport by then, with husband number four. And I would drive the two hours, partly to visit her and let her get to know her granddaughter, but mostly to go to the little Unitarian Universalist Church in the A-frame building on Shreveport-Barksdale Highway. Anybody there remember that? It was a lay-led fellowship and the only place I didn't have to walk on verbal eggs about religion or civil rights or the war. Nineteen sixty eight was a disastrous year. In February, the Tet Offensive with Saigon overrun by Viet Cong. In April, Dr. King assassinated. In June, Bobby Kennedy assassinated. We were learning assassinations had become part of our nat- national life. August police riots against demonstrators at the Democratic National Convention. And in November, felt like a disaster to me, Nixon was elected. After Dr. King was associated, I decided to act on some of my strong opinions. I joined the NAACP in El Dorado and helped organize biracial dialogues. I joined another Mother for Peace, whose logo was a flower, with the words, war is not healthy for children and other living things. I joined the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Larger Fellowship, the church for you use who don't have a local congregation. <clears throat> but I have joined a UU church, um, a local congregation, everywhere I have lived since then. In 1970, Bill resigned his commission and we, re- and we moved to Little Rock, where we both worked in state government, and I was active in the UU church, mostly crafting lay-led worship services and trying to convince the minister to use inclusive language, Im- imagery, and sources for reading. Years before, before I knew I was a UU, when we were church shopping in Seattle, we went to a Methodist church where the minister was quite liberal. We had great discussions in small groups, but Sunday worship always had the Apostles' Creed and the hymns were the old standbys like Onward Christian Soldiers. I told the minister how uncomfortable this all made me despite how much I liked his sermons. Can't you just ignore the words, he pleaded. 
Can anybody hear? Just ignore the words. Well, no, I could not just ignore the words or bring myself to say or sing them. At least you use had changed some of the old hymns. You'll notice that onward Christian soldiers became forward through the ages. Still triumphal, still martial, but better words to my way of thinking. So in 1973, the Arkansas General Assembly considered the Equal Rights Amendment for the first time. The right was waking up, and Arkansas was the first state where they were effective enough in muddying the issue to stop the ratification momentum that it rolled through the first two dozen states. At the time, we chalked up the defeat to the colorful nature of the Arkansas legislature. Mutt Jones in his red cowboy boots and red boutonniere standing up on his desk waving a Bible and proclaiming that woman was put on earth to serve the needs of miserable men and then proving he was an expert on miserable men by voting against the ERA. Nevertheless, we thought, surely we would have no trouble in subsequent sessions refuting this Yahooism without without well-researched facts and reasonable arguments. The ERA was a simple matter of justice, we thought. We continued to believe this long past the time that empirical evidence should have shown us otherwise. We failed through three general assemblies to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Similar stories happened across the country. Eventually, time ran out. Since this was the only amendment Congress had ever put a deadline on, We were somewhere between, I don't know, boiling mad and totally ticked off and, I don't know, grieving that our country had just said no. Eventually, we regained our sense of humor and started the Keeping Barefoot and Pregnant Awards. We had skits caricaturing and satirizing the worst cases of misogyny, racism, homophobia, and other injustices. We also honored uppity women of the year and honorary uppity women, good guys. I understand it's still going on, those yearly awards. During those years of organizing, lobbying, campaigning, writing op-ed pieces, designing exhibits on women's history, and putting on a thousand-strong march, I grew tremendously. These experiences taught me personally not to censor myself, to use my creativity and my own experience as a guide. People might disagree, but if I told my story, they couldn't refute that it was my story. It might resonate with their experience and give us a place to connect as human beings. 
These experiences taught me politically that all issues are connected. Some people will brand you a radical for the mere act of speaking up, as they did Susan B. Anthony when she first stood up to speak because it was not considered appropriate for women to speak in public. A movement is weakened by fearing diversity and strengthened more by honoring diversity than by merely tolerating it. These experiences taught me spiritually that patterns repeat and are very hard to change. That progress does not proceed in a straight line, but by some strange dance of, say, three steps forward, two steps back, do see do and around we go, doing it all over again. Sound familiar? Someone once said that if a thing's worth doing, it may take more than one lifetime to do it. When I started devoting so much time and energy to the ERA, I saw it as a great cause. We would change the Constitution to include women as full citizens. Surely anyone could see this was right and proper. The depth of the opposition puzzled me and shook my foundations. The amendment only has 26 words. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied nor abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. These words were in keeping with the American tradition of extending however belatedly, the blessings of liberty to previously excluded groups. Nevertheless, the ERA was seen by opponents as the most dangerous idea since sin. We thought we were dealing with the legal status of women. Our opponents knew we were dealing with the order of the world. To them, it was the serpent peddling the apple, and this time, they didn't want Eve to bite. I believe the opponents sensed, long before most of us did, how powerful the idea of equality really is. So... A few years later, in 1982, I was divorced. It was very civilized and uh, very civilized. And in most ways, I was more relieved than sorry. Is something burning? Does anybody else smell that? What is it? Oh, the chalice burned out. Okay. Hmm. Well, don't like that. Well, I guess it's not going to do any good. All right.
So, although I was more relieved than sorry, still I grieved. I felt an unfamiliar feeling of vulnerability, stripped of the misses that I never used. Economically, I was in the top 10% of salaried women in Arkansas, but even with child support, our family income dropped by two-thirds. When Lauren went off to college at Centenary, I found myself rattling around in a house that had felt too small for three, but was cavernous for one. I didn't seem, oh. I found my emotions flipped back to adolescence. Suddenly, it seemed more urgent to change my personal world, my internal world, than the political one. I didn't seem to be able to do much about the political world anyway. I learned a lot about friends as family. I learned you don't always have to be strong and cope. It's okay to ask for help. I learned to be there for individuals as well as causes and to be there for myself. I learned the importance of community, much of which for me centered around the Little Rock UU Church. At a women's conference about that time, someone pointed out to me that I seemed to be awfully angry. How could I not be angry at injustice, violence, destruction of the environment, woman-hating, indifference, willful ignorance? I recited a litany of outrages. Yeah, she said, that's all true, but why are you so angry? That much hostility just breeds hostility in return. You need to learn acceptance. On the contrary, I proclaimed with some hostility at the idea that one should accept outrage. Anger has energized me out of apathy. Well, anger had energized me. Burned out old programming, cauterized wounds, but it had begun to be more corrosive than healing. Chronic anger was stressing me physically, contributing to chronic dis-ease. To reduce stress, I experimented with meditation. I found it refreshed me and increased my awareness, effects which lasted beyond the altered state. I was feeling much calmer. I was beginning to feel downright mellow. At the UU District's Southwest Summer, uh, at the UU Southwest District, of which we're a part, at the Summer Institute, known as SWUSI, a panel of UU ministers discussed Time Magazine's semi-derisive article on the 1983 UUA General Assembly and our new principles and purposes. Time named paths UUs commonly travel. Humanism, Christianity, theism, concluding with feminism and other religions. The moderator read the article, defined religion as that which binds, bonds, or ties together, and asked the panel, is feminism a religion? In my newly mellow state, I was idly thinking. I'd never considered feminism a religion, but certainly feminism was a strong bonding force for me and my movement sisters. One by one, the four ministers answered the question with, 
dismissal, disavowal, or at best, benign ignorance. One like it likened it to religion emerging from the sciences, which was true enough but ineptly explained. Another declared it merely trendy, with no historical basis. I was seething at yet another devaluing by people I thought of as family. I stood and in a voice of outrage spoke my hope that here, in this community of free thinkers and agents of change, the deep ancient wrongs might begin to be redressed, pun intended. That here, where we could redeem old gods, invent new gods, or live with no gods, there was a home for women, where women were respected and womanness valued. I hoped. I charged them with their dismissal and challenged them to show from where else in this association any spiritual energy was flowing other than from women in general and feminists in particular. I dropped into my chair, shaking, and was startled when a third of the audience stood up applauding. It was only a third. I collapsed, sobbing. Women and some men came over to comfort and affirm. It is hard to convey the profound impact that event had on my life. The intellectual confrontation, emotional involvement, and personal identification with a particular issue were standard fare for me. So was articulating what many, uh, what many people in the room felt. But this was visceral as though every deep and angry wound any woman, any woman in that room felt was resonating in my gut and demanding voice. It was a deeply transformative experience. It also provoked substantive discussion at Swoosey and in the district. As a direct result, I developed a worship service on ecofeminism as religion, the evolution of a rational mystic born again neo-pagan. And I took it on the road under the auspices of the District Women and Religion Committee. The message was that the new worldview emerging from the sciences, our rational minds, had made a mystic of me. It's all one thing, all one polymorphous thing, one thing in many forms. We are all made of stardust. You know, this hand and this cell phone, made of stardust, born in the bellies of exploded stars. That's just a f an incredible idea to me. The creative principle at work in the universe where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, that is my godness, my god-ing, my cosmology. And I'm a part of that. For me to truly see divinity in myself on a personal level, however, I had needed to go back 30,000 years to find an image 
a fem of a female who looked like me. The earth mothers of Willendorf and LaSalle, for example. I found a being as ample, as life-affirming, as this planet Gaia herself. I was renewed in ancestral women, a born-again neo-pagan. This is my mythology, the story that tells truths. The story that tells truths. Plural. My ethics are based on this new old worldview and the wisdom emerging from ecology and feminism. Subvert the dominant paradigm, said my bumper sticker. Ecosystems are complex webs of relationship, says ecology. Social systems are as well, says feminism. So are all our futures. Will you please stand in body or spirit and show...